To change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good-natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down in the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope. The power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, 
and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Jeff Teagues. Uh, Jeff does some really great work with a company called The Guardian Group. Jeff is a veteran of the United States Army. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a wide range of topics. Jeff, how's it going? John, it's fantastic. Uh, this has been a long time coming. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I and I feel honored to be, to participate. Awesome, Jeff. So let's start before we talk about the Guardian Group and the work that you guys are doing over there. Can we start with uh, the beginning for you and your your military career and kind of walk through it? Certainly, man. And uh, it it was it seems like a lifetime ago, way back in 1987, when I was graduating from high school, uh, I was just looking for a new challenge and something interesting to do. I didn't know much about the military, but uh, I bumped into some recruiters. They piqued my interest. I began to understand what uh, the Rangers were. I'd never heard of Rangers before. I'd seen movies and, you know, John Wayne, Special Forces, that type of thing. But I didn't realize there was a group that you could go right into as a young man. So at 17 years old, I joined the Army. And I didn't do it the right way. I didn't have it in my contract to be a ranger. I was uh, like many young men. They sign up with a recruiter with delusions of getting exactly what it is you want. But as luck would have it, and there's plenty of interesting stories around that one, I made it through infantry training, uh, volunteered for airborne school, made it to airborne school, volunteered for rangers, went through ranger indoctrination program, it was known back then, and then went to uh, the 1st Ranger Battalion. And those were really formative years for me um, because I was such a young man. That was definitely where I really began um, to choose this path, this tough path, becoming hardened and disciplined and focused. And I thank uh, all those tough NCOs that put their energy and time into creating a soldier. So I served initially in Savannah, Georgia at Hunter Air Airfield from uh, 1987 to 1992. And that was also the first place where I cut my teeth on combat, which was both in Panama, invasion of during just cause, and then the uh, desert storm, you know, not a whole lot of action there, but participated in that. And the reason I bring those up too was not only just pivotal as leading other men in combat and, and under fire, but those were the first times I ever began to hear about sex trafficking and that it was actually a thing. And it was a thing that I kind of parked away in these faraway lands for just crazy narco traffickers, you know, radicals, terrorists, that type of thing, never understanding that this was actually a global problem. Right. And it's, it's something that a lot of people aren't very aware of. It's interesting. I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine and, um, I forgot exactly what we were talking about, but it was centered around some political debate. And and he he said a comment, something to the effect of, "Oh, so so what are you telling me? There's um there's still slavery in today's world." And I said, "Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, there is, and there's a lot of it, but it might be uh, termed differently. Uh, but I would consider trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking as a form of slavery. I don't know if, if that's something you might agree with, though, but. Um. I, I do agree with that. And, you know, the you know, one of the terms out there that people they, they call it modern day slavery. And I I appreciate that term um, and it is modern day slavery. But I think when you when you talk about modern day slavery, they also talk about labor trafficking, you know, so human trafficking in, involves labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And we really try to focus on 
the sex trafficking and very even more specific, the sex trafficking of minors. And, and that's why I say the first time I ever even got wind of anything like this was, was during the Noriega reign down in Panama. Uh, him and some of his henchmen, they had a penchant for children. And it just, it wow. just blew me away that, that something that evil could exist. So the other thing with that is, you know, when we go to war, uh, it's nations making decisions. It's all of these geopolitics. But when uh, my first experience there in Panama, it was just as an individual running a small ranger team and the evil that we saw and that we were trying to disrupt is, is what brought it down to me to a, a very personal level. You know, wars are huge and complicated, but very often for the individual soldier, um, it just it really goes simplified to right and wrong, good and bad. And that was the first time I learned that. And obviously, as my career grew, I ended up retiring as a lieutenant colonel. You know, you get aspects of all sorts of other pieces, but I've never lost that sentiment that that warfare is one man against another um, and your side at that level often has one one side is right and one side is wrong. It does. It isn't that complicated as, as some people try to make it. Right. And um, <clears throat> so you, you, you kind of got your first uh, eye opening experience. Uh, I guess you can call it towards uh, this, this reality that, you know, some people live. Um, and then, and this was as a young ranger, but you, you progressed uh, further up into different uh, special operations units throughout your career. Um, can we roll into that as well? And then we'll, we'll kind of dive in fully into the, um, what the Guardian Group is getting into. Yeah, I, I loved what I did as, as a young ranger. It was just, it was amazing. It was an amazing way to, to, to grow up physically, emotionally, you know, intellectually. But I also became uh, the angry, disgruntled ranger because in 92, as I learned more about the special missions units that were out there, I was not eligible because I had my eyes. I wore glasses and contacts and my eyes weren't at a point where I could apply for those special missions units. So I ended up having a break in service. I got out. I was the angry, disgruntled ranger. Couldn't get what I wanted. I wanted the next step, the next level of professionalism and what I felt was just as you, if you were going to move towards a career. So I got out and went to college. And while I was in college, I ran um, division one cross country and track. So I really was able to help keep this, this focus on building teams and, and really kind of a tight focus on what it was that I was doing. Uh, and as I was going through college, I had heard from friends that um, the special missions unit were now accepting the surgery on the eyes. So I pivoted what it was I was doing, um, and I decided to come back in. And I came back in and uh, was able to go to an infantry unit for a very short time. I had a kind of a uh, handshake deal with uh, General McChrystal back then when he took the regiment. That I, I did my did a short time at 1-5 Infantry right across the street from 2nd Ranger Battalion and really loved my experience there. And then went to Second Range Battalion, served there for uh, for a couple years, and then made the decision to move into Special Forces. Um, so at that at that time, as I was moving from lieutenant to captain, I also began to understand that I that my real desire of leadership and teamwork was at that small unit level. I didn't have the desire to take over a company or even let you know or a battalion. I really liked working in peer leadership and these real um, kind of specialized teams and missions. So uh, from there, I went to 10th Special Forces Group and arrived there on a fantastic team. And shortly after I got there was the invasion uh, of Iraq. And we were involved in the Northern Front up there um, as kind of an economy of force mission fighting with the Kurds. And I began to develop a relationship up there with the Kurds and with Iraqis that lasts to this day. And that also was now a time as people are beginning to understand as that war and that enemy morphed into Al Qaeda and then ISIS, 
how sex slavery and the subjugation of, of women um, has become part of the way that they, one, fund their ideology, the terrorism, and then two, it's just how they reward their warriors uh, with kind of the, the booty of war. So as uh, this idea of sex trafficking kind of took a, a backseat in my mind, it started to move to the forefront again after 2003 um, as I began to bump into it more in the Middle East. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of in in an environment like that, and and you see it today with you know the emergence of ISIS, and now they're you know they're pretty much getting their asses kicked uh, in Syria and Iraq. But um, you kind of see it with the breakdown of the local government in whatever area that they're operating in, where it seems like it's kind of pure chaos and women are, you know, rape is a, a regular thing. Um, you know, they're, they'd be, they're beheading women for, uh, some of the smallest things. I mean, you can find all of these videos online, uh, as ISIS seems to be pretty tech savvy, at least to a point where they can post and, and show what they're doing. And, um, it's just really remarkable how brutal it is. And that brutality seems to to draw people in. It's really kind of strange to me. Well, you know, John, you're you're entirely correct. Um, but you know, as I've as I've moved into studying this crime and studying this this enemy, these traffickers, I I actually have more respect for what you see with ISIS and Al Qaeda and the and the way that they move women as sex slavery. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, separate the two. A lot of this is just selfish and evil and abuse of women. But some of these folks, it's their radical ideology. Like they truly believe that this is their right. If you don't believe the way they believe and you are conquered in battle, then your men are given the choice to convert or die. And your women are subjugated to sex slaves. So, there is a certain logic that they use and an ideology that they follow. Right. But here in the U S man, the, these men and women that are abusing and exploiting and trafficking girls, they're not doing it for any ideology. It's purely power control and greed. So as you know, as, as I, as I've looked at this crime and as I, as I began to look at what I was going to do after the military and began to understand that, Hey, this, this isn't a, a, a radical crime that is tied to narco traffickers or these radical terrorist groups that see the world in a very different way. This crime is alive and well in the United States, and we allow it to exist and we allow it to flourish. And these traffickers are just despicable people, manipulation and exploitation purely for control, power and greed. They do not even look at these boys and girls that they're oppressing as humans. It's purely a commodity to them. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine. He's a, um, he was a tanker and then, and during the early stages of the Iraq war. And then he eventually became a green beret. And, um, I forget which group he finished up with, but when he retired, he was recruited into a program called the hero program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I do. I know it. Yeah, and, and he was so he was working there for a few years, and um, it's it's really shocking, and uh, you know to kind of to see what the reality is in, inside the United States because you know you say oh you know Iraq and you know northern Iraq, western Iraq, Syria, it's going it's happening there, but you know that's a pretty bad war zone. But then you look and say hey, this is the United States. It's supposed to be you know a, a, a pretty secure place. Uh, considering the state that some some countries are in, you know, in the world. Yeah, and Hero Program is is fantastic. It's such it's such a, a terrific organization, and they deal predominantly with child pornography. Yeah. So let let me circle back to that in a second with with child pornography and prostitution and trafficking, and kind of how we separate out those two. Because as as I was talking about my journey, as I can in the military, as I continue to to move through the military. I ended up finding my way from 10th Special Forces Group into the U.S. Army's uh, Special Missions Unit. 
And from that is a by design a surgical counterterrorism organization, and it was designed in response to kind of terrorism from the '70s and '80s. But we morphed dramatically over the years as we were kind of the, the lead edge on these fights in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in other places across the globe. And what I really found that I enjoyed. Kind of as I got older, uh, intellectually, physically, I, you know, my body wasn't wasn't the way that it was when I was a young man. I, I really enjoyed the strategy and the fight, the co- the collection of tactics to get to where you need to go, um, breaking apart these criminal terror networks, hunting these high level Al Qaeda and ISIS leaders. That was really what I enjoyed, and it was really what I found out that I was good at. So around around the same time as I'm looking forward, I'm you know approaching 20 years in the military. Uh, I've been married for for 20 plus years at that time. We're going on uh, I'm going on 30 years now with with my wife Julianne. Our sons were approaching that age of around 18 or so. So as as I was getting to that point of a life decision. I was also getting kind of this, it's hard to explain, but kind of just a a, a bit of a whisper, a call to, to do something about this abuse of these children right here in the U.S., you know, to take the skills that I had been trained in and honed through counterterrorism and counterinsurgency methodologies and apply those to the problem right here in the United States. And with that kind of clear vision, um, a couple of years before I retired, I started to dig into and, and get get myself to become a, a, a quote unquote expert on sex trafficking in the United States and what it would take for a collective, a team of teams like we had built in the counterterror, counterinsurgency world to really tackle this crime in the U.S., so that that's basically you know applying the same mindset, um, uh, particularly like with you know counterinsurgency, uh, special forces kind of uh, from the ground up, uh, on, on, you know attacking it on different levels, not just uh, you know kicking in the door and you know hey you know the gunfight kind of stuff, but there's more that goes into it. Can we kind of dive into that? Yeah, you're and you're spot on. I mean, it, it is the mindset, it's the methodology, it's the philosophy, it's, it's all of the things that uh, you know special operations are expected to understand and employ. And 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 those were the things too where, where my frustrations happened. Don't get me wrong, I love the fight. I love the fight in Iraq. I love the fight in Afghanistan, and I would do it until I'm an old old man. You know, as you're in the military and you get higher in rank you become further and further away from that fight. And now you're, you're responsible for, for helping shape and form strategy. And we just, I was never satisfied with our strategies uh, in Iraq for lasting kind of success. And obviously, I mean, it goes without saying our lack of, of a winning strategy in Afghanistan. Right. So as I, as, as I began to become one of those guys that was going to be responsible for that, uh, it, I was dissatisfied. Um, and I, I missed that level of the fight. Those days were gone. And I, I, that was when I decided to take what it was that we knew through special operations, that methodology, that ideology, philosophy, and apply it to this crime. And I think one of the reasons that this crime is so rampant in the U.S., you were alluding to it, was we have a stable government. People think that that the, the sell, sell of selling of women and children is something that only happens in India or Thailand or, you know, Eastern Europe or something to that effect where these, these governments are unstable, but it, it thrives in the U S because we have a false sense of security that our government and our law enforcement is able to able to contain it. Um, we do have a stable government. We do have a capable law enforcement, but, but this crime is so deep and complicated that it really requires the private uh, sector, as well as the public sector, to, to get involved and, and develop a strategy. We want to be a complement to what's already out there, what our law enforcement is doing, what our district attorneys are doing, what other organizations are doing out there to raise awareness 
and, and bring prosecution to these predators and restoration for these girls. We have a very niche capability, and that is understanding how to hunt bad men, how to break apart networks, both on the technical side, because this discussion takes place over the internet and other means of communication, and bringing that information to law enforcement, combining it with human intelligence, combining it with other strategies to really start to get ahead of this crime cycle. So when you finished up in the United States Army, you, you said you finished as a lieutenant colonel? Yes. And you finished up uh, out of special missions, right? I did. Okay, so now you, you finished up uh, on the special operations side, and now you transition out. So this is where the Guardian Group comes in, right? It is. So let me... Um let me back up just a little bit on that one. So there was another another real driving factor. Um, so uh, like I said, I, I got out in 2015, the end of 2015, and I, I think I really started looking at this crime probably 2011 maybe is when I started to kind of read and study and, and develop these ideas beyond it. And then I think it was in 2012 when a, a good friend of mine that I had actually served in first range of a town. We were, we were young privates and specialists together, an amazing guy. Um, he had been at the special mission unit for, I think over 20 years. And he was at the same point I was where his kids were getting older. They're getting ready to move out of the house. Marriages are strained as they always are in, in, in times of, of, of particularly the style of war. And he decided to retire. Now this guy would have, should have, could have been the, command sergeant major of the special missions unit. He was, he was that exceptional and talented, uh, but he made that decision for his family. And as right after he left the unit, he picked up a job contracting overseas to kind of make, make ends meet to figure out what it was he was going to do next. And he got killed in Afghanistan. And I'll tell you what, that really made me angry and it made me feel responsible as a, as a leader in the special missions unit, I, I, some soul searching was what, what are we doing? What are we providing options for our men and women after they leave service where they don't have to continue to fight the, the men and women that we recruit, assess, train, and employ in our special missions unit are incredible people and we pour everything into them. But at that time we had this cycle of when it was time for them to separate from service or retire, we just said, thanks, literally, that's our motto. You know, that's what we say when you leave, we give you a small plaque that says thanks, which I completely appreciate. And then we show them the door. And I realized at that time, we are wasting this talent. We are not providing opportunity and options for our men and women. And we're not putting them against tough problems that exist in the world and in the United States. And so in addition to me being called to really address this problem of, of trafficking and the abuse of children in the U.S., I also felt a heavy responsibility to provide options for our men and women coming out of special operations, just like Hero Corps. The people in Hero Corps are, are uniquely suited to look at that disgusting crime of child pornography. The men and women coming out of special operations are uniquely suited to work with law enforcement and other partnerships across the United States to apply their analytical capabilities, their operational cap capabilities, their problem-solving expertise against this particular crime. So we're definitely drawn to counter sex trafficking, but I think this model of taking talented veterans post-service, and, and I'm specific to special operations because that's my life, but it's, you know, there are talented veterans everywhere, taking them post-service and really applying them to tough problems. And for me, I prefer the criminal problem because again, we have that background and, and that confidence in who we are against these adversaries. I think that's a new model we really need to embrace uh, and stop looking to the federal government to answer our problems. We need to build solutions at the community, tribal elder, village level, which is what we've learned in both of the predominant wars of the past decades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when, and this is, you know, if I'm talking to uh, 
this particular bit is is mostly from talking to Green Berets. Um, uh, you know, a friend of mine was a first generation Green Beret, served in Vietnam, and then he went into Mac V Sog. Um, and then, you know, just several guys that I've known and made friends with over the years, where if you deny the enemy the ability to operate within the community, within the village or uh, the region, you know, as far as the people allowing them safe haven, then you really deny them the area. And then, you know, you then you have the ability to, when you do go out on, uh, you know, operations, and you do get into a gunfight and, and you take out their leadership, then they, they no longer can operate in that area. And I think um, on the local community level, if everybody's on the same page, um, you know, you can deny these traffickers, uh, you know, what they need in order for them to succeed at what they want to succeed at, you know. I, I love it, man. You, you, <laughs> you're, you're talking my language, and that's exactly, <laughs> you know, if you... If you look at this from a counterterrorism perspective, where you have to target these networks, you have to target these people that are of influence, or or specifically target the children, you know, because if you if you get stuck in in just looking at human trafficking writ large, so you get bogged down with labor trafficking, or you get you know you get bogged down with with prostitution and 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 all these other aspects, you're not going to see the kids, and that was what I was referring to earlier. When I said Hero Corps, they look very specifically at child pornography, and that's what they focus on, and they're chipping away at it. We try to focus as much as we can on on the minors that are involved in sex trafficking. So when you when you talk about trafficking versus prostitution, the legal definition is force, fraud, or coercion. So you can be a trafficked victim uh, as an adult if there's an element of force, fraud, and coercion, which there usually is. In any prostitution case, but it's harder to it's harder to make stick. But if you're underage, it's automatically a trafficking case. There is no such right. thing as a child prostitute. So just like you aren't going to find an Osama bin Laden or a Abu Musab al Zarqawi, you're not going to find those folks unless you're staring at the network and the and the situation around them. You're not going to find the kids unless you're really staring at them, and that takes a very focused effort that law enforcement isn't equipped to do. Law enforcement enforces laws. They have to deal with all these different crimes. And we try very specifically to dig at the miners. And the other reason behind that too is I'm not here to, to debate the benefits of the sex industry and how it empowers women or, or how it does not empower women or, you know, what, what we should legalize prostitution or any of those types of things. I'm not here to debate the utility of pornography and free enterprise, all, all, all of those things you have two different sides to discuss, but almost everyone can agree. Children should not be involved in pornography. They should not be involved in the sex industry. So if, if we can find that one common ground, I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, you know, uh, Catholic Rastafarian, I don't care what you are. If you, if we can agree that children should not be involved in the sex industry and we can join together with our unique access and placement, um, we really can do the things that you were talking about. We can make the environment inhospitable for these traffickers to, to work. Yeah. And I think, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I was keen, you know, to, to, to have you on so we, we can, put what you're doing on a, on a platform because I feel like most people in the United States t would totally agree. And most communities would agree that, you know, and, and, you know, as we say, it takes a community to raise children, right? Um, everybody I think would be on page or, and be on the ball with this, but it's, I think a big chunk of it is the awareness part um, cause people, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So people just, uh, you know, you assume, oh yeah, maybe there's some sex trafficking and, oh, you know, the federal government's probably doing something about it. And, and, and that would be kind of people's thoughts on it. Or maybe someone might share something on social media and that would be their contribution to it. But, um, you know, I, my hopes in you coming on here and then we discuss this and we talk about the guardian group is that it will offer a little something, an understanding for people 
who may be interested in, in contributing to this and, and kind of uh, explaining how this works and explaining how you guys are affecting this uh, fight. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, when, when it comes to uh, this particular crime and, and I, again, I go back to these wars that we've been fighting, you know, where, where is the heavy effort to counter this radical ideology that's, that's driving this fight. You know, I, I, I haven't seen it effectively enough, you know, so we, as special forces guys, um, we equip and empower our partners to, de- to defend themselves and push back this evil. And then we are in the forefront as well as breaking apart these networks, but, but you're only buying enough time for these other kind of elements to work. And that's, and that's what we're doing with Guardian Group, too, is we're, we really partner with, with law enforcement to help them be more efficient at what they do. And it's, it's really a, a tough place in culture right now on the lack of support for law enforcement. Yeah. Um, it, it, and and I, I never in my wildest dreams understood um, what it was we expected of our, of our law enforcement officers and how little we uh, resourced them. You know, yeah. they don't have a training cycle like we're used to in the military. They don't have access to the cutting edge technology. You know, they don't have access to to really sharing the best practices of, of tactics and strategy. So that's what we that's what we try to bring to it. And this and the crime of trafficking, it lives online. And and why it's a perfect crime for a nonprofit like Guardian Group, we're a five hundred one c three to participate in, is because there's an advertising aspect of this. It does live on the deep, dark web. Don't get me wrong, but there is a very public facing advertising where they sell these women. And I think what people also misunderstand, one is the scale of it, but they also confuse it sometimes with pedophilia. Okay. A a pedophile has a penchant for a child, you know, and these, these men predominantly that want to buy children for sex. That's its own category. And that, that exists, and we fight against it. But the but the broader category are these men that just want to buy a pretty young girl, you know. And, and I'm using air quotes here. These normal men that want to buy a girl for sex, okay? That's what the market is, and that is a huge market. And the reason that we've got minors involved is because these predators, these pimps, and these traffickers, they have to be able to control their product. And they get at these girls when they're 12, 13 years old, and they begin to pull them into the sex industry and they control them. So they're turning them out when they're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old because they can control them. They've got them manipulated. These girls are malleable. They're naive. They're just young girls. And these guys trick them and fool them and trap them. And it isn't that there are millions and millions of men that want to have sex with a minor there are millions and millions of men that want to have sex with a pretty young girl. And as long as there is that air of deniability, Oh, she told me she was 18. She told me she was 19. They'll make the purchase. So that's the space that we're trying to focus on. And it's called uh, CSEC, CSEC, the commercial sexual exploitation of children. That's the space we focus. We bump into prostitution, we bump into pedophilia. We bump into all sorts of things, but we're really trying to clean up that space where we limit both the desire, the buyers helping Johns understand, Hey, when you go out there to buy a, a girl for sex, understand what her story is, understand where she came from and the abuse and what it is, this economy you're supporting, you know, and, and the predator himself who is manipulating these girls we, we want to, through law enforcement and through the community, strike fear in these guys that there's, that there's more of a threat. Statistically, less than 1% of a pimp trafficker is ever prosecuted. So when you think about that, John, if this is purely a business deal, that you could make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on selling girls and you have a 99% chance that you're going to get away with it, just pragmatically – that's a pretty logical decision, isn't it? Right. It's like a no brainer. It's it's like a no brainer. Now, now pile on top of that. We have pockets of communities all across the United States that have been doing this for years. They've been involved in prostitution for years. So now, now 
pile on top of that as a no-brainer business decision to a cultural and community acceptance of it. Now pile into that where gangs are beginning to see, hey, there's a profit in selling girls because they're not consumable like a drug. Now pile on top of that the, the explosion of the internet and the way that people communicate. So now these guys can assess and recruit girls and boys from all over the United States from their bed, you know, from their kitchen, from their den, from the, they don't have to be out there physically looking for girls and boys at the malls and the schools and the, and the, uh, and the playgrounds. They're still out there, but they're able to scale this thing dramatically. So un, until we begin to figure out ways to scale a counter trafficking support, they're, they're outpacing us dramatically. So now when we, um, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, prior to podcasting, uh, you talked about some of the kind of different um, approaches to countering some of these things. And I, I thought it was, it was pretty unique and interesting. And it really, you know, like I said before, really reminded me of the kind of Green Beret approach. Can we talk about some of that? Yeah, it's it, and it, it uh, you know, when, when I talk about the special missions unit, we're known very much for kind of our our precision strike, our surgical strike, you know, the just the we call it the old number six, just hitting it hard and fast, landing on the roof, blowing up all the doors and, and moving as, as quickly as possible. You know, that is a huge aspect of us, of, of, of us and what we do. But as the, as the years have morphed and we've, and we've been involved in these wars, even the special missions unit are more of the Green Beret style, where you're this economy of force. You're a specially selected and equipped and trained and capable force that is, that is used to employ the other elements that are out there. And that is something that I, that I really enjoyed as much as the actual direct combat was, was building these teams um, that were there and invested and when you went home and they were still in Kurdistan or Iraq or Afghanistan or pick a country, they were still there continuing the fight. <clears throat> and that's what we're trying to do with Guardian Group. Right now, we are still building uh, the, finding, the finishing touches on our headquarters. So uh, we know it as the mission support site. That's what we call it in, uh, in the Special Forces world. We're still establishing our, our mission support site. But the model we want is an intel operations type, we call it a regional operating center, in cities all across the U.S. So that, that's, that's men and women who have experience through the military in intelligence analysis and fusion, and the operators who understand how to take that information, build it into a tactics and strategy uh, with law enforcement. So if I could wave a magic wand, that's what it would look like. Our mission support site would be built so that's a, a pullback for all of our individuals that are out there across the United States. And we'd have people planted all across the U.S. in these major cities where this crime is just going through the roof. And um, so <clears throat> for the, the Guardian group, you guys are pretty much in the in like the building stages to kind of roll some of these ideas out, right? Yeah, so my, my partner, Jeff Keith, he started Guardian Group in 2010. So as, as luck would have it, uh, in 2012, I think it was, or 13, uh, he was out in North Carolina. He was at a mutual friend of ours' retirement. And we were standing on the back porch drinking a beer, and I asked him what it was that he did out on the West Coast. And he asked me what it was I was interested in doing once, uh, once I, I retired in a few years. And we had literally the exact same vision, but he came from a very different background. He came from a leadership background. He came from, from the church. He was, he was a pastor. He had done a short time in, in service before he got injured uh, in kind of rescue. So he, he had the same vision, but he didn't know how to put it together. He didn't have the access to the, to the people and the training that I had, uh, but we shared one common vision. That was when we partnered up. So in 2010, Guardian Group had been in existence, but we say we really started our offense in 2016. So Jeff had done a lot of work building out these partnerships and these trusts with these different task forces across uh, around the West Coast. And when I came on board is when we really began to hone and focus what our offense would look like. 
and how we were going to bring technology and tactics and methodology to partner with uh, with law enforcement. Um, so we, we've only been really pushing that offense for a couple years now. So we're moving kind of out of that startup phase and beginning to expand. And I'll tell you what, John, what I thought was going to be the hard part was convincing law enforcement that a, that a bunch of veterans, a bunch of civilians that really don't have any charter or authorities, so to speak, in addressing this crime would be a, 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 a vital and viable partner with them. I thought that was going to be the hard part. Mm. And I thought the easy part was going to be raising the funding, raising the resources. Who doesn't want to help protect children? And it's actually been the opposite. The, the communities out there, the law enforcement and district attorneys and these other task forces that are focused on countering this, the crime of, of sex trafficking, they have welcomed us with open arms. But it is the public, both the corporate level and the individual level, and kind of just the public awareness that they, they have yet to really tackle um, their responsibility and involvement in this. So we built the model. The model worked over the next over the last six months and in the next six months of the year. We're really trying to stabilize steady funding so that we can expand and grow and have much more of an impact through our operations. Yeah, and I, I think um, obviously you guys have things figured out as far as the operations side, getting the information and and how to uh, affect the, the change. And and this is really why I wanted to get you on so that um, I can use my platform to bring awareness to your uh, organization. And what I will say to my audience is I really encourage you guys to to check out the Guardian Group. Um, and if, if you can, and if you think this is something that is important, uh, which I, I think it is, and I would highly encourage you to, if you can donate some money, if you can afford to do it, then please do it. And if you can help, uh, share and raise awareness, then please do it. Because, uh, you know, as you've heard from Jeff, the, the things that, that they're doing and the experiences that they're bringing to the table is really invaluable and, all they need is the funding and the, the awareness to help uh, push this forward. So where would be the best place for people to, if they're interested after listening to this, to kind of um, get a little more information, get a little involved? Yeah, so hit, hitting up our website at theguardiangroup.org. Uh, you can reach it at .org or .com. They both go to the same place. So they can they can connect through there. We also have a social media presence not, not a huge one, but they can they can follow what we're doing on Facebook and they can, you know, uh, repost things that we're talking about. Um, they can. The other thing that we, we ask folks to do, in addition to the prayer, prayer warriors that are out there that feel a heart for this, you know, and and, ha- and share that kind of um, uh, spiritual connection like most of us in, in Guardian Group do is, is, is pray for rescue and recovery of these victims, pray for justice for these predators. Um, they can also raise their voices to their local community leaders. So we have a we have a new concept that we're just unrolling, and it's called the Sealed City concept, Sealed City Initiative. So, like I talked about earlier, it Guardian Group is not going to solve this problem. Law enforcement isn't going to solve this problem. DAs aren't going to solve this problem. The, the victim advocates and the shelter workers protecting and restoring these girls aren't going to solve this problem alone. We all need to do it collectively. So the Sealed City Initiative is, is communities taking it upon themselves and saying, not here. Do not come to my town to sell women or children or boys or girls, and do not come to my town to buy them. So we're, we're trying to kind of get that going. And where we see the battlefield is initially online, you know, where this exchange is made, where this contact is made, these escort sites. And then in the hotel industry is where, where these men are meeting these, these girls. So those are the, the, the first two front lines is the online presence and the hospitality industry. And then even local communities, they, they have a lot of power through their chambers of commerce and through, other, uh, through local policies to demand protocols and procedures be put in place. Um, when you bump into trafficking, and I'm telling you, your listeners um, who think they haven't seen it before after hearing this podcast, they're going to see it. They might not have recognized it earlier, but, but they're going to see 
this exploitation. Um, and it's, it's still weird for, for me, John, to, you know, to ask for money and ask for support as a nonprofit things. I want to encourage people if they're interested in that at all is look us up, look us up on GuideStar. We are completely transparent. We have very, very little overhead. Um, the, the effort that we put into it goes directly into operations. And, uh, we've talked a lot about my background and our, our, one of our core values with guardian group is, is being quiet professionals. That is the way that I was trained for many, many years in the military. And that is still part of who I am as part of who guardian group is. And that's a necessary thing when it comes to security and force protection. It's a necessary thing when you want, you know, law enforcement and these other community efforts to be on the forefront. Um, but it's also detrimental as a nonprofit when you're not in the news, you know, banging your chest each day, about the successes that you've had um, with these stings and countering this crime. Right. So we want to remain quiet professionals. We want to remain behind the scenes and, and give the credit to the men and women right there on the front lines of fighting this crime. And to have this platform like you're offering us, I, I can't thank you enough because that helps us. That helps us do that. And it helps, I think, a lot of your listeners know what we're talking about, what it means to be a quiet professional and, and work behind the scenes. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, like I said before, generally you just don't know what you don't know. I think there are people out there, especially the, the audience uh, that listen to this podcast and the people that follow me on social media who are, are really good people. And if there's an opportunity to do some good and affect some change in this world, they will jump at it. Um, so I know it's like coming from where you come from and, and for many guys that I talk to and have on the podcast, uh, like you just illustrated, you spent so many years um, essentially being in the shadows. And then, you know, when you're retired and you're, you're moving on to the next venture, you have to kind of step out. And I know that could be a little uncomfortable. Um, so I really do appreciate you doing this. Like, I know it's you're really kind of going against everything you've done in the last uh, 20 years as far as, um, you know, talking about what you're doing and, and using that to generate awareness and bring uh, what you need to bring to your, your audience and platform to be successful. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate that. You know, and you've, I, I'm not sure what's happening, but you know, you've, you've tapped into some really remarkable people. You know, we, we, we spoke offline earlier about your interview with Scott Kelly and your interview with Dave Nielsen you know, both of those guys are good friends and both of those guys through the years have actually been sounding boards for, for me as, as we've talked about these, these ideas, like, Hey, what, what in unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, how, how could that apply? You know, how do we do, how would we do that? You know, both, both of those guys have been huge supporters through the years. So I don't know how you continue to kind of tap into this small community, but I love what it is you're doing. And again, I can't thank you enough for this platform to get the word out about Guardian Group um, and how we have a heart for veterans to employ them in future service and then obviously to better protect the women and children across the U.S. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Uh, you know, I do appreciate that. And um, I want to thank you for your service as well. My pleasure, man. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell people you need to thank my wife and kids because I absolutely loved what it was I did and the men and women I worked with, and I think it was harder on them um, than it ever was for me. But thank you, I appreciate that.